Hey there, listener. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and our mission here at ISI is Educating for Liberty. If you'd like to join us in fulfilling our mission, consider helping us by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Now, back to the show. Good morning and welcome. Thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting, as well as uh, to my uh, friends who will be joining me on the panel in a moment. I want to begin with a question. How many of you have heard of the books Good to Great by Jim Collins or Zero to One by Peter Thiel? Most of you are familiar with these. These are all part of a popular self-help genre for entrepreneurs, helping them to become the next Steve Jobs or to found the next unicorn company. Our culture is saturated with these business books, yet when we look to the political sphere, nothing comparable exists for statesmen or aspiring statesmen. And this is a historic anomaly of epic proportions. And it's particularly ironic given how much Americans complain about uh, their political leadership here in Washington, DC. So my book, Gateway to Statesmanship, exists to fill this void. Going back to 1516, the Renaissance humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam wrote, the main hope of getting a good prince hangs on his proper education. His audience was the young Prince Charles, who would go on to become the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And this, uh, uh, this uh, quote was part of a letter uh, that he had wrote uh, to the young prince. And it was part of a tradition called the Mirrors for Princes. This tradition goes all the way back to antiquity. It exists in nearly every civilization, East and West. Some of the texts you're probably familiar with, like Xenophon's The Education of Cyrus. Uh, Julius Caesar is said to have never left for a battle without carrying copies of Xenophon's Education on scrolls. Or Cicero's On Duties. Uh, This book in particular shaped the thinking of many early church fathers. And then all the way uh, in the Renaissance period, you see Thomas More uh, never leaving the house without a copy of Cicero's On Duties with him in his breast pocket. But there are many other books uh, from from Han Fei in in ancient China to Catilia in India uh, to Agapetus the deacon in Byzantium that have largely been forgotten by history. Uh, As a whole, this tradition contains the political wisdom of mankind, and despite shaping uh, and having a profound impact even on some of our American founders, like Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, and others, uh, the tradition is largely extinct today. In fact, I think my my book is actually the first collection of these texts that's been published since the Renaissance. So what's going on here? Well, there are at least three factors that contributed to the disappearance of this great genre. The first was the historic shift from monarchical forms of government to representative governments in the modern era. It was a little bit easier when you knew who the young prince was uh, to write a book or a letter and offer your services, uh, either as an educator, hoping to be a tutor to a young prince or princess, or if you were um, aiming to be a, you know, a court uh, official, you could present it sort of as a you know, practical and policy manifesto for a new administration in hopes that you might get hired. Uh, now, many of the, uh, the authors in this uh, tradition actually got killed uh, in the service of the, the kings that they served. And so some of these texts actually didn't do much good uh, at the time that they were actually written. Their impact was hundreds or even thousands of years later when it was gifted and, and presented to others uh, when they came to power. But there's no reason that we couldn't have a revival of this tradition 
uh, mirrors for presidents or mirrors for senators tradition in our own day. Uh, the two other reasons, um, uh, first, there was a shift in the beginning of the progressive era away from statesmanship classically understood towards management and expertise and bureaucracy. Uh, it, people were a little bit uneasy with the idea of a, a great sold leader with his or her hand on the rudder of the ship of state, navigating the boat through you know, tumultuous waters and unpredictable winds, relying on you know, the virtue of prudence and other classical uh, inspiration. And, and so there was a shift. It felt a little bit safer to have experts manage society and to focus more on bureaucratic management. And then finally, uh, our higher education system in America just stop teaching many of these classic texts. Uh, they are guilty of what C.S. Lewis called presentism, which is basically if it, if it wasn't written in the last 10 minutes, they're either ignorant of it or they believe that it's stained with the guilt of sins from previous eras and they don't really want to touch it. So what's needed today uh, is a process of rediscovery and redeployment. We must remind ourselves that previous generations gave careful thought to the qualities that they wanted to see in their political leaders, and that they set very, very high bars for their own leaders. So we need to uh, make the effort to actually do that in our own day. Uh, in my book is a, a first start at that in a collection of these classic texts from throughout history, uh, but I eagerly anticipate many other mirrors being set forth in front of our leaders today. The second thing that we need to do is build institutions of higher learning that are capable of transmitting this knowledge to the next generation. Um, I'm, uh, I went to Hillsdale College, had the privilege of going there, but there deserves to be a Hillsdale in at least every state. Uh, and at ISI, our work is really educating college students in these classic texts, giving them the education they're not getting in the classroom. But the work could be multiplied a thousandfold if we want to have the impact that we need. And it's also important to remember that this tradition wasn't just taught in universities. This was really a one-on-one -on -one, uh, pupil-mentor relationship. And that you know, costs a little bit less money than founding a university. It would be more easy to revive that today. Uh, and ideally, this happens between individuals who are, you know, living, you know, at the same time. But uh, if you're not lucky enough to have uh, someone like that, you can pick up any of these classic authors and make them your own personal tutor. So America today uh, finds itself in a moment of crisis. We have $36 trillion in debt. We have a crisis at our southern border. We have a cultural crisis at home. And all throughout the world, we're faced with multiple foreign policy crises. Um, and so we're in search of a statesman. And in a point like this, it's important to remember, uh, especially throughout the Mirrors for Princes tradition, you don't often get to pick your leaders. That's not only true in, in, in monarchies, it's also true in democracies. Great leaders are emergent. They come to the fore when virtue and fortune intersect, often at a moment of crisis. Take, for example, George Washington. If he was born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, we might not know his name today. Uh, and the United States of America might not exist as we know it. So here we are today against the backdrop of many profound challenges facing our nation. And there are a few fundamental lessons from the Mirrors for Princes that I think are of relevance as we, as we seek to identify and educate a new generation who can, who can save America. First, realism. We must have leaders who take stock of the world as it actually is. 
I, I like to, uh, I, I think Kevin Roberts, president of Heritage is absolutely right when he asked the question, do you know what time it is in America? You have to understand the actual circumstances on the ground before you can even hope to imagine the world that you would like to build. Uh, in this tradition in particular, we could turn to Machiavelli, who's included in this collection for realist advice, but today I'd like to focus on St. Thomas More. Uh, to me, Thomas More is the, the quintessential Christian realist. And in his book, Utopia, he's describing a conversation between a fictional character named Thomas More um, and another character named Raphael. Raphael is a traveling intellectual. He's a man of the world. He claims to have a lot of experience. He's read a lot of books. And so he's dialoguing with Thomas More. And Thomas More says, you know, you're so wise, Raphael. Have you ever considered entering into the council of a king? Uh, getting your hands uh, dirty in the business of politics. And Raphael was, was offended and he said, you know, no, absolutely not. You know, I could not bear to see my beautiful ideas, you know, sullied and dirtied by a king or by a prince. You know, politics is far too messy business for me. Uh, I'd prefer to stay in the ivory tower. And Thomas More rebukes him. He even gets, you can sense the anger in the text and basically, you know, calls him a fool and says, uh, you know, you simply... The, the way that it works, and I'll actually share the quote here, is you have to go through the drama at hand as best as you can. And don't spoil it all simply because you happen to think another one would be better. That's how things go in the Commonwealth and in the Council of Princes. If you cannot pluck up bad ideas by the root, if you cannot cure longstanding evils as completely as you would like, you must not therefore abandon the Commonwealth. Don't give up a ship in a storm because you cannot direct the winds. And he followed you know, this, own, this advice in his own life and eventually, uh, in his famous last words, died, died the king's good servant, but God's first, and lost his head in service to his king. But he had this realist understanding that I think is very important for us to recover today. Second, we must reclaim transcendence and the common good. Uh, so realism and interest, while important correctives from the the utopian uh, globalism that had enthralled Washington, D.C. Uh, after the, the end of the Cold War uh, is not an end in itself. It's not sufficient. There are higher aims than realism and interests that need to be taken into consideration, especially for great leaders. So transcendence, right? Great leaders throughout history have embodied the people that they represent, but they've actually often risen above dueling factions of aristocrats or oligarchs to reorient um, the regime towards more permanent and transcendent ends than politics, right? Like in Aristotle's ethics, they're pointing the regime towards the good, even towards God himself. You see this in uh, Xenophon's portrait of Cyrus when he was uh, on his military campaigns. He said, I always try to begin with the gods, not only in great matters, but even in small ones, because he thought that Beginning with the gods uh, would actually make his men more pious, make them more restrained and virtuous, which would be helpful uh, on their military campaigns. You see this in Al-Farabi, the uh, Islamic thinker I've included. He writes, uh, interestingly, the one who cures bodies is the physician, and the one who cures souls is the statesman. So there's an element of soul craft in political leadership. And then in our own American tradition, in our own distinct way, we see this in the tradition of Thanksgiving Day proclamations uh, with Washington and Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. And you see them setting aside days of Thanksgiving and fasting to orient the regime towards God. You see Teddy Roosevelt even saying, you know, the things of the body are important, but we can't be drowning in materialism. The things of the mind are higher, 
but it's the things of the soul that are highest, and we need to recover that as a people. Next, we have the common good. Uh, one important point from Cicero in the book is a great leader doesn't focus merely on partisan or class interest. Now, obviously, I understand in Washington, D.C., you have to play for you know, one of the two teams, the red team or the blue team, and also candidates have to win elections. But a mark of a great leader is that they actually have a vision for the flourishing of the whole body politic. And the common good you know, manifests uh, differently in each particular community, but the fundamentals are um, you know, the, the basic temporal conditions need to be met so that individuals can live lives of virtue. There needs to be rule of law, there needs to be law, law and order, there needs to be protection from foreign invasion, and lastly, there needs to be broad-based economic prosperity. And it's interesting looking at the economic advice found in this tradition, because there's, there's a productive tension between um, two warnings. On one hand, you see, and this sort of runs all the way from Cicero to Machiavelli to Erasmus, uh, warnings about uh, having taxes being too high, right? They generally say you want to keep taxes low, you don't want to crush the economy, you don't want to smother people. Uh, Machiavelli uh, rather humorous, humorously says that uh, a man will more easily forgive you if you kill his father than if you take his land. Uh, so there's a strong, a strong warning uh, not to tax people too high. At the same time, there are, are repeated warnings against income inequality. And the reason for this actually uh, isn't necessarily, it doesn't really necessarily have to do with justice, although you could explore the justice angle. It really has to do with the, the stability of a regime because a highly unequal regime uh, is one that is very unstable. And if you're a political leader, especially in the ancient world, uh, order and stability really was a precondition for justice. And so if things are highly unequal, this is a, you know, these are the warning lights that are going off on your dashboard if you're a leader, and it's something that you should concern yourself with. And finally, we must take beauty seriously. We must have an, an aesthetic vision that we lead with for all of our policies. Mo most people are not persuaded by logic and reasoning first and foremost. Their imaginations are captivated through beauty and then the ideas come along afterwards and help sort of rationally make sense of what is persuading them. Great leaders paint on a big canvas a beautiful vision of the world uh, that they want people to inhabit and they give them the confidence that they are the person to bring that about. Uh, this is why you see great leaders are almost always great builders of beautiful things. One of my favorite um, uh, historic figures is Justinian the Great uh, in the Eastern Roman Empire. And I actually have uh, some advice uh, offered to Justinian included in the book, but he built the Hagia Sophia, uh, a church that stands 1500 years later, uh, one that was so beautiful that it converted entire nations to Orthodox Christianity because they believed that heaven descended upon earth uh, in that particular building. He was also a lawgiver and the code of Justinian to this very day, you know, it shaped Roman law and then it today, you know, impacts uh, European law. Uh, and so he, uh, he seasoned his law giving with building beautiful buildings. I would even go so far as to say um, that the common refrain, you know, ideas have consequences is a little bit overstated. This is not a knock on Richard Weaver. I know there are a lot of Weaver fans at ISI and in the audience, but I think it's, it, it overstates the role of ideas in, in shaping politics in the world. I, you know, looking back at this tradition, I really see it as statesmen lead 
right? They create great and beautiful realities, and then the ideas people come along, and they make sense of it afterwards. I even think this applies with our own US Constitution. It was a document that aimed at union. The goal was union while preserving liberty, but it was forged in the fire of, of debate and of compromise. And once they finally got a union that stuck, then the ideas people come along and they write the Federalist Papers and they do the work of actually persuading people and reasoning through what was just created. So realism, transcendence, common good, and beauty. These are the qualities that needs to be revived uh, this day. So in conclusion, uh, we can't predict our future. I know if you talk to many people, they say, you know, 2024, this feels like an intense moment of crisis. We feel like something bad is about to happen. We don't know that that's the case, uh, but that doesn't give us an excuse. We must prepare for the future. And no one prepared for the future better in his own day than Charles de Gaulle. And so one of the things that I did with this book, even though the Mirrors for Princes tradition largely ended at the end of the Renaissance, I've included some more uh, modern texts in here uh, to help update the tradition to the present day. So I've included one from Charles de Gaulle called The Edge of the Sword. So this was something that he wrote in his early 30s. And what I love about this is at this point in his life, he hadn't really accomplished anything. He was a prisoner of war during World War I, uh, but that was largely a, you know, a post where he, you know, he was locked up, but he basically drank coffee, smoked cigarettes all day, and read a lot of old books. He felt guilty that he wasn't able to do something more great with his life. Um, and so he sat down and he basically wrote his own Mirrors for Princes describing the ideal qualities of a leader, drawing from uh, Aristotle's magnanimous man. And then he set out the rest of his life uh, to become the man that he described on those pages. Uh, later in life, he would defend France from the Nazi invasion. He would found the Fifth French Republic. He would serve as its first president and then usher in a whole new paradigm of economic growth and prosperity in France. So it will take de Gaulle's extraordinary level of ambition directed towards the proper ends if we are going to do two things that will help to restore our country. First, articulate the qualities that we would like to see in our own American political leaders. And second, expand the institutions of education required to pass on this tradition to the next generation. If we can do those two things, we will raise the odds that one or several heroes will emerge uh, in politics, but also in culture, in business, and in education that can help to restore the happiness, the safety, and the independence of the American people. Thank you. So I am uh, Daniel McCarthy, the editor of Modern Age, which is ISI's quarterly journal. Uh, and I'm also the vice president of the Collegiate Network at uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. So I have the uh, privilege and honor of working with Johnny on a regular basis. Uh, I'm here to moderate now a discussion between Johnny and Elbridge Colby. And uh, Bridge Colby is himself an extremely distinguished uh, philosophical statesman, I think you could honestly say. Or perhaps, you know, we have this category. It's a high of, bar after Johnny's this, excellent well, talk. I'm a little sheepish here. We, ha we have this category of public intellectual in the United States today. And uh, I think Bridge is filling that role better than almost anyone else of his generation, which is also my generation. So um, he really is a remarkable individual. He's the author of Strategy of Denial, one of the most important books on foreign policy to be published in this young century. He uh, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Secretary and Force Development. And he is uh, the principal of the Marathon Initiative. And uh, he's an extraordinary individual, as of course is Johnny Burtka. So I thought we'd start out perhaps uh, with uh, a 
couple of bi biographical questions. And uh, maybe we'll begin with Johnny. What inspired you to write uh, this gateway to statesmanship? Yeah, it's a great, great place to start. When I was in college at Hillsdale, that's where I first encountered some of the Mirrors for Princes tradition. I took a course on Erasmus and on Thomas More. So it was really that Renaissance tradition of Mirrors for Princes that first captured my imagination. And then I put it on the back burner. And then, you know, just assessing the, the American political landscape, sort of getting sick and tired of the endless complaining about our political leaders. I mean, it, you know, the, the polling numbers on Congress are abysmal. It's just one thing that, that Americans seem to have a bond over, but there's really no one doing anything about it. And so, um, you know, the reason that I put the collection together is because no one, you know, since the Renaissance has done anything with these books. And so I feel like I'm on a mission to bring back the Mirrors for Princes. Bridge, you have a, uh, a background at Harvard University, which has been uh, in the news even more than, re than <laughs> usual recently. Um, tell us a little bit about, about your own intellectual formation and how I know that you've studied the great books with Harvey Mansfield. Um, how do uh, selections such as those that you find in Johnny's book help to shape um, the outlook of someone like yourself? And how should they shape kind of the uh, American elite in foreign policy and in other walks? Well, first of all, it's really a pleasure to be here for this, this event, a privilege. Thank you for the invitation, Johnny, for this really commendable and important work that I think just both in its concept and its delivery is a real success. And wonderful to be here with my friend Daniel as well, who's, I must register my objection to your far too kind assessment, although I'm grateful for it, but I will just, I will just leave that dissent here. But, but thank you very much. Um, I, you know, I, um, I, I actually, my formation, since you asked personally, is very much in this kind of tradition. I mean, when I was at, uh, I mean, just, I haven't really spoken about this too much publicly, but I didn't start really thinking and reading about, well, I wouldn't say thinking, but really reading and focusing on a study of mm -hmm. national security and Amer as a sort of technocratic enterprise. Hmm. If we're going to go into the kind of, you know, your progressivism element. I spent, to some extent in high school and then certainly in college, really focused more on ancient medieval and early modern History and political theory and moral theory, and so um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, uh, presume to compare my my expertise to yours, Johnny, as demonstrated here. But I, you know, whether it's Aristotle, uh, the other classics, I mean, also the story, you know, Plutarch and so forth, and the histories themselves. Um, I I actually I mean I do believe in a liberal education. If we go back to kind of Newman's uh, mm -hmm. defense of the liberal education, but I really liked what you said here. Also, there's a tendency sometimes. Um, especially in some of the more esoteric approaches to it, to take that to a kind of a, a separated place, mm -hmm. you know, as if this is sort of a remote, I mean, you know, Plato in a sense, right? Yeah. And I think what you said about realism and the, the Ciceronian point that you, that you emphasize, that, that this is actually designed to be practical mm -hmm. as well. And of course, Machiavelli is the great, you know, that, uh, you know, critique that those can be reconciled. But I think also we have a generation now Maybe I'm being optimistic, but if you look at, at a lot of the political leaders who are, say, in their 30s and 40s and so forth and, and younger, I think there are people who are receptive to this and who are rejecting the technocratic. I mean, look at Senator Hawley's piece in First Things, for instance. Yeah. People may not agree with every particular part of it, but the idea that there should be a broader conception of what, you know, what education is rather than just the pulling of levers in a managerial ex exercise where we're at the end of history and we're just trying to, like, you know, administer uh, the robots. I think I think there's a real. I mean, you're, it, the plasticity to the time and people's minds. I hope, and so the book really comes out at a very opportune moment. Well, thank you. And yeah, it's interesting because even 
uh, and I hope there are you know more more people like you that serving in government who have this appreciation for the classical approach and kind of the more complex religious and cultural factors when doing foreign policy. But even if you listen to I don't know if it, you know podcasts of uh, you know former um, and recent national security advisors, not national security advisors, but people who have served in, in the national security bureaucracy, and you're listening to how they're talking about doing foreign policy, like they really sound like McKinsey consultants. You know, <laughs> yeah. they have sort of their portfolio and right. uh, they have problem sets. And I mean, it's just a very rational way of approaching it, you know, just like purely like a business person would. Right. And they're just nearly totally ignorant. Maybe they're not, you know, maybe in, they appreciate some of these old books, but when it comes to the day to day, how do they do their job? They're just approaching it like it's uh, you know, a math problem and ignoring this greater cultural um, context. One other thing that you uh, touched on is that this tradition really isn't, it's not a, you know, the book is not a philosophical uh, treatise. It's, it's practical advice. And the thing that I love about, um, you know, some of these, these authors, they, they understood that people involved in politics are busy people, right? They have short attention spans. They've got a lot on their plate. And so they really set out to make this advice. You know, they even appealed to their own self-interest. You know, right. if you do these things, and here's specifically how you can implement these, here's what, you know, the, the roadmap to being a better leader. Can I say something? Uh, just because I think it's, you know, and maybe, Daniel, you and I were talking about something about this earlier, but just, I think there's a, t we're at a point where certainly on the foreign policy realm, I mean, we're looking out and the, you know, things are falling apart in Europe and the Middle East, and God forbid things could get even worse in Asia. You know, uh, I, I think on on the economic, or certainly how people are feeling about the economy and so forth. There's a real sense that 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 that, you know, I, without getting too personal, I mean, I thought Fukuyama, as he actually wrote in the actual end of history, there was a lot more nuance, and where his kind of rhetoric is now is a little bit of a different story. But but the sort of sort of bolderized version of of end of history was ascended, including among conservatives, you know, earlier in this century and and late at the end of this century. Now there's a sense, certainly I think on the right, but but also it seems across the political spectrum to some degree that that overconfident kind of um, you know, B-grade movie version of the end of history is, is unchallengeable. I mean, I remember, I remember sitting in, I, I interned in the White House in the summer of 2001, and the biggest issues at the time were this poor woman, Chandra Levy, who was murdered in Rock Creek Park, stem cells, and there were shark attacks, I think, on, on Martha's Vineyard or something like that. And I remember Condoleezza Rice gave a, a speech, and I and I actually I had the opportunity to ask her. There was like a hundred interns or whatever, and I said, um, you know, what what are the big issues for foreign policy? And she was basically, well, it's like corruption in Indonesia, you know, instability in Pakistan. But it was it was kind of policing the outer boundaries of the end of history, basically. And I think that has been undermined. In, in some ways, it's bad, but I, on the whole, it's probably I mean, it's natural. It's realism. Yeah. So in some sense, you know, it has to be dealt with. But that opens it up to. You know, the danger in some sense is people say, oh, this old model is dumb, and so th nobody knows what they're doing. And so expertise of any kind is out the window. But this is saying, no, there's a deeper form that's not the Dewey kind of expertise, but that is a product of reflection and a philosophical formation that, of course, you then have experience and expertise on top of that. But it's not a kind of cookie cutter, you know, machine approach to the, to the problem. One of the great things about this book is that it illustrates the way in which the generation of today, including the, uh, our panelists uh, this morning, can stand upon the shoulders of giants, that there is in fact a great tradition and a transcendent tradition that can be drawn upon. And um, one of the things that I, I think um, is worth taking to heart from Johnny's remarks uh, of a few minutes ago 
is the importance of knowing why you're in politics in the first place and knowing why you're conducting a foreign policy in the first place. And the common good, the transcendent, and the beautiful should all be kept in mind as the uh, conditions that one wants to reach at the end of one's activities. Whereas you see oftentimes with this um, utilitarian, technocratic, McKinsey kind of spirit that Bridge just alluded to, uh, this sense of a complete uh, loss of any sense of what the object is of our activities. Or if there is an object, it is you know, cast in kind of utopian technocratic terms, especially one recalls during Marxism, it was going to be uh, an end of all forms of inequality. It was going to be universal material prosperity. One looks at various forms of progressivism, including, I think, neoconservatism today, and you see that uh, the end goal is again envisioned in very worldly terms as simply a matter of universal liberal democracy, the end of history. And that's going to be you know, the thing towards which we are aiming in all of our policies. But in fact, there are deeper and more beautiful and more inspiring things to be found in the visions that are laid out uh, in uh, Johnny's book. So that, I think, is an extremely important uh, element for people to take from uh, this wonderful work. Gentlemen, I wanted to ask you a kind of uh, a tough question, but you can interpret it as you wish. Um, as Johnny says, most of these uh, mirrors for princes as a genre disappear around the time when princes are starting to lose power within the world. Hmm. And you're seeing a gradual shift from the Renaissance into the present from a monarchical uh, system towards uh, a democratic system. And it seems to me that one of the interesting things uh, that replaces the mirror for princes genre is education itself. And you see philosophers like John Locke, for example, starting to write more and more about education of the masses and what that uh, should constitute. And that becomes a substitute for what previously had been the uh, mirror for princes genre for the ruler. It's a change in sovereign leads to this change also in uh, the focus of what kinds of texts philosophers are writing. So my hard question to both of you, and we'll start with Johnny, is what do you do with these texts that were written for a more kingly age in our own time of equality and commerce and democracy? Mm -hmm. So my... Um assessment sort of reading through the you know these historic texts is really that you know it, well one it's an obvious one is that human nature doesn't change so it's fixed and in, in you know permanently um and i think we can perhaps overstate how the change in regime type um uh, affects what people really want from their political leaders i i would largely say that you know what people want from their political leaders has been the same for most of time uh and so you know reading through these texts i, I just don't see um, you know, obviously there's some contextual differences, but uh, by and large, I think the advice holds true regardless of the regime type. Yeah, and I would also say, I mean, I think, and you would know better than I, but, you know, Mirror for Princess is a particular, almost subform of what you're actually gesturing. There's sure. probably not a more kind of comprehensive term, but I mean, if you look back at, at Cicero and Aristotle and the ancients, they are talking in a Republican, or in the case of Cicero, a decaying Republican context. Um, and I think that's why it's really great. Uh, I mean, not just for m many reasons, but you included like Washington. And of course, we mentioned the Federalists. I mean, they were using assumed Roman names. Sure. I mean, Washington looked up to Cato uh, and other of the Republican heroes. So I think it's, um, there is a Republican small r form of this. Uh, you know, and you can go back to, to obviously in the Christian tradition, you know, Augustine and so forth. Um, but I think that that's, uh, I think that's I think that's a consistent a consistent theme. Indeed, and it seems that uh, several of our authors, even when they seem to be directing their remarks um, to 
a hereditary prince are often also thinking about the integration of the one, the few, and the many. Right. Yeah. And that uh, you find that in Machiavelli, who of course you know poses a problem for historians and philosophers with the perceived uh, difference between the prince on the one hand, a small book directed towards a uh, someone in a you know sort of royal setting more or less, and uh, the discourses which uh, focus on uh, republicanism. Now, uh, both of you are leaders of uh, institutions uh, right now, uh, intellectual institutions, nonprofit institutions. Um, I was curious about how you might see these works and these ideas applying to uh, leaders in roles similar to yourselves in America today, and perhaps in other walks of life too. So would corporate executives, for example, benefit from learning more about statesmanship? I mean, one of my favorite things about working at ISI is that I get to you know, interact with so many students, attend you know, student conferences. And one of the things that I've done is taken an, sort of an adaptation of this book and the talk and distilled it down to basically like 30 principles, 30 pieces of life advice that any of our college students can implement you know, tomorrow to become a better leader. Those aren't mentioned in the, the book itself. But uh, so I think basically you know, all of these lessons can apply. It applies just as well to the CEO as it does to the captain of the sports team or the student council president. Yeah, what I would say, I think, and I mean, to go back to the theme about, you know, we're in a sort of uh, a time of, uh, I mean, it's a cliche, but I think it's actually true in this case, a time of fundamental change and reassessment. Um, and there is a tremendous, um, not necessarily in the environment we're in right now, but in the broader culture and in kind of conformist mm. pressure uh, to stick with, you know, the McKinsey model or the end of history model or whatever you want to call it. And a, uh, you know, um, well, just career, intellectual, sort of moral incentives to be seen as a righteous person or whatever the term we would use today. And I think what this shows is, I mean, look, there, there are kind of very practical, you know, like in The Prince or something, or Cicero talking about how do you behave that are valuable. But I think one of the things you could take away from this is a sense of more timeless, um, values or, or framework for looking at the world and you know, your duties and what we should be striving for that should give people a confidence to stand against the, you know, the, the, the sort of old Kuhnian paradigm, if you will, if it's failing. Yeah. And, and, and a failing paradigm often can be the most aggressive in trying to, to insist that people conform. And what I would say is, you know, and what I, you, you know, if you're reading Charles de Gaulle, Mm -hmm. I mean, de, Gaulle's, de Gaulle was one man against the whole, you know, and as you rightly said about it, there's huge factors of contingency, and you can't control your future. You can't expect to be given the opportunities, God forbid, that, you know, that George Washington, the, and the challenges, right? As the Chinese say, the opportunities, the challenges are kind of the same. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be <laughs> stuck with that level of responsibility. But, but, you know, you can, it gives you a sense and a conviction hmm that beyond the particular time and moral framework they were in. I mean, I'm just struck by, I mean, you know, kind of going out a little bit on an excursion, but just, you know, particularly on the progressive side, but the incredible moral change that they go through, like over from like decade to decade, and yet the, the, the well, it's not really necessarily conviction, but the, the, the fervency and often intolerance that accompanies it. How do you have a fixed moral conviction if like the very individuals that we're talking about have a view on a, on a fraught moral issue or political issue that's 180 degrees from what he or she himself had 10 years ago? 
And I think a lot of that is because many of them don't have a fixed view. They go along with the sort of the, the spirit of the age, which is their, I guess what, and I'm not sure a lot of them are aware of that. Um, but I think for those of us who dissent from that approach, maybe not every particular moral conclusion, but just the overall approach, you really need to have, especially because this is, this is not like you're going to go up like St. Benedict maybe into the mountains and, and hope that things will turn out better. And I mean, that's not fair to St. Benedict, but you know what I mean? Like you're going off the, in, into a cave on the edge of the Irish coast and you're hoping the Vikings will go away. No, there, somebody ultimately is going to have to engage. And this is where I personally agree with Thomas More that like, whether or not it's morally superior before God, I don't know. But somebody has to push back, yeah. right? And so even the, the guy standing on a stylus is going to ultimately rely on somebody else to, to turn this around. And having this kind of framework and this sense like that we are not just confined in this imminent moral, political, intellectual environment is, I think, very important. Yeah, and I think that environment, that bubble is in it, even though it's a moving bubble in the sense of it changes every 10 years, it's really a highly you know, ideological um, context in which people are operating. And in some ways, I think that's a small-minded way of, of thinking about politics. And so you know, one, one of the things I appreciate about what you're doing, Bridge, is you're, you're sort of bringing that realism. And it's a way of kind of popping that bubble. But then once that bubble's popped, then it's kind of like, you know, where do we go? And so a lot of these texts in the, the book um, are, you know, it's a way of, because uh, there are obviously consistent themes throughout all of them, but there's also a lot of variety um, in each of the cultures and religious traditions. So it's also a way of saying, hey, you know, there's other ways of thinking about political problems. Um, and it's, it's sort of offering a way of expanding people's imaginations on what might be possible once the bubble is, is exactly. popped. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go to questions from the audience in just a moment or two. I want you all to be thinking about uh, questions you'd like to pose to Bridge and to Johnny. Uh, but before we do that, let me ask Johnny right fast, was there a particular text in putting together this book that um, inspired you more than others? Was there a favorite, or was there something that you found surprising mm -hmm. and sort of more engaging than you had perhaps expected? I think uh, Xenophon's Education of Cyrus was the most rewarding. Um, you know, one of the themes throughout the book is really restraint, you know, and in, in reading the book, it's kind of interesting because there are parts of it that are just so good. I mean, you're just eating it up, flipping page over page, and there's other parts that just seem to really stall, and it, you just have to slog through them. But I actually think that's kind of designed, you know, I think it, it, the, reading the book is also teaching you the virtues that he's describing. Um, so I found that to be, you know, just sort of a book that I think the rest of my life I'll come back to. And I also want to read it with people that are far wiser than me and have studied Xenophon. But if you're just looking for something to kind of inspire you, um, I think uh, Charles de Gaulle's The Edge of the Sword. I mean, it's just shocking that this book, I mean, I published a, a selection from the, the chapter on character. So there's a, a chapter on character and on prestige that are just so powerful. And it's a short book. It's probably 100 pages. And I don't think in English, it's not in print in English mm, really? uh, at all. You can only buy one from, I think, Criterion Publishers that was published in 1960. And it's a used copy. So that's one where I think it's just an inspiring portrait of a leader uh, that everyone should just immediately open the book and flip to. It's my favorite. Excellent. So I see we have a question from Luke Nathan Phillips from Braver Angels uh, over there. Uh, Johnny, I'm curious what you think about the relationship between 
emulation and introspection in modern mirrors for princes. Somebody on the internet told me recently that um, young men in the 21st century who LARP as Teddy Roosevelt explicitly tend, strangely enough, to actually appear more like the historical Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> which would appear to be a significant uh, gap in perception at best. So um, I'm wondering what you think about that. How do we like be who we are trying to be, not uh, something that we don't see? That's a, that's a funny question, but it's actually it's a very important one. So in the Mirrors for Princes tradition, there is a lot of emulation and there's not as much introspection. There's an attempt to get leaders to try to be more introspective. Um, but you know, Cicero talks about the shortest way, he even calls it a shortcut to greatness, is to imitate other uh, great men and to uh, enter into the company of them. Uh, because you know, if, the more that you start acting like the person you wanna become, First, other people will start seeing you as the person you want to become, and then you'll start actually becoming that person. Um, and so, obviously, you know, internet LARPing is, is you know, is, is gotten out of control. Uh, but I would actually say it's, it's the Mirrors for Princes tradition, you know, maybe as opposed to other more philosophical or relig you know, spiritual traditions, is really about, you know, emulation is kind of where you start. I'll translate for some of our uh, older uh, members of the audience and, and viewing public. Uh, LARPing is live action role playing. So uh, it's but, when you pretend you're a knight going out and fighting a dragon. Well, also, <laughs> excellent question. I mean, A, Teddy Roosevelt himself started out as being a little bit more Woodrow Wilson-y. And I mean, I think to your point, I mean, like Aristotle is that the, you know, if you want to form habits, you know, one of the key things is, I mean, I, I think this is a kind of modern thing that everything has to be genuine, mm -hmm. whereas the more yeah. traditional approach is, well, you know, we are a bundle of different factors, and if you start out acting, that will create, and that'll sort of build on itself, and of course, you wanna be conscious of hypocrisy and so forth, but, but I think that that's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's Aristotle's ethics. Yeah, I mean, right. you, yeah, you don't I mean, start out wanting the right things, you yeah. force yourself to do them, and then in time, you, yeah, your, you'll get your better, desires better. are ordered in right, the right way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, question there. Thanks so much. Johnny, looking forward to reading the book. Uh, the question is for uh, both you and Bridge, but it's something that Bridge mentioned earlier. And it's what do you do if you are the leader and you actually do have a really fixed uh, uh, end state that you're reaching for, it's well-ordered, it's, it's transcendent, and it's just. Um, and in the political context, you have to make compromises to get there. Um, and I'm thinking of, of Lincoln, who had a clear goal and who was you know, breaking promises frequently in order to achieve that goal and also incurring like not just the hatred of his foes in the South, but also within his own party. So I'm curious as to what your, uh, Johnny from the book and Bridge and your, your studies and your experiences, what's your advice to, to them when they're in that situation? I'll let Bridge take that <laughs> one. Question. Take that one first. Well, that's a great. I mean, it's a great question and a and a and a big one. And I mean, it gets at the issue that Machiavelli, of course, put his finger on, which is can individuals and, and leaders be um, judged by the same criteria? I mean, I think it's pretty unremarkable to say that they can't be judged by exactly the same criteria. But is I, I you know, I, I I believe that it is not that um, that uh, that uh, statesmen have no. Uh, sort of um, criterion other than, than results. I mean, even in the Gospels, Jesus has the parable of the steward, right? That there's some, those who are entrusted with the care of others have a duty of care and, and stewardship, right? 
Um, I mean, I think one of the things about this book and why it's so much better to have just this than just a technocratic, you need expertise, you need to know what you're doing, you need experience, all these things, but is that, that those questions, and I don't think the kind of people in here would say that there is a fixed rule to evaluate that. Um, you know, I, was, I noticed that you had the, the beautiful passage from City of God, from St. Augustine, which I think gives a sense more of, um, in a way, I guess, um, let me, let me answer, it's a little bit off topic, but it, I think it's analogous, which is, I often argue, we now look at whether a war is just by its conduct. And my argument is that you can't only judge use in bellum, you have to judge also use ad bellum, and use ad bellum makes a difference to the severity that is permitted in the conduct of the war, but it, I think it's analogous to the kind of question you talk about. Now, which is inherently, there is no, there is no answer, and you can, you can go adrift if you say, well, I'm permitted to do whatever is necessary. I mean, we have established institutions in our country that lie and kill people, and so you know, I think those are, are defensible, even if difficult. So I'm not giving you a very good answer, but I, yeah. <laughs> or a very complete answer. But. Yeah, I think it's, it, well, it's hard, because I think in one sense there is a slightly different category of morality that leaders are judged than individuals. Um, you know, in, in one sense, you know, if, if someone individually like slaps you on the face, right, you're called in the gospels to, like, to forgive them, right? Um, if, you're, if you're governing a nation, right, you're, there, are, there are sort of more, the safety, the happiness, the well-being of, of thousands of people, of the whole regime, of the whole civilization might be hmm. hinging on that. And so you, I think, have to respond differently as a public leader. It doesn't say there aren't any, not right. to say there aren't any constraints, but also if you think of like Aristotle's portrait of the magnanimous man, you know, he comes across as someone who's like, you know, really, oh, you know, overly self, you know, confident, looks down at others, uh, doesn't care what his enemies, it doesn't even talk about his enemies unless it's to insult them. You know, there's all these amusing lines, and you you might think like, how is this guy sort of the perfection of the moral virtues? But I think if you were to think of him more as a statesman, right, and he's acting in a, in a public context, uh, considering honor and considering other things, there is a different dimension to that leadership. And I think you you get this. I'm I'm also not a theologian, but there there are some more I think gray areas. You know, one thing that I found interesting. I'm I'm Eastern Orthodox, and uh, at least from what I've been told, you know, if if an Orthodox soldier is fighting in a war, even if it's a just war and they kill someone in that war, uh, they're actually not allowed to receive communion for, I think it's a year after that. Really? And so it's, a, it's, it's this interesting thing where it's, well, did they do something that was sinful? And it's like, well, it was a just war, you know? Um, but at the same time, fundamentally, like hum humans ought not to shed the blood of other human beings. Mm -hmm. And so there's some penance that needs to be done, even if that action was ultimately for it, something that was just. So there is sort of a, I don't want to say it's just the realm of like Machiavellian necessity, but there is some, some gray areas where leaders are judged by different standards. And prudence is the virtue that allows the integration of necessity and the correct balance of the other virtues and to figure out the ways in which uh, virtuous conduct may involve uh, some recognition of the difficulties of circumstances. And it may also, it always does require, in fact, choosing the right balance between um, a deficiency and an extreme with respect to the virtue itself. So, uh, you know, prudence, which has always been uh, one of the emphases of conservative statesmanship going back to Edmund Burke, is uh, perhaps all the more valuable today. And it certainly is something uh, that one will find powerful lessons communicated through 
in uh, gateway to statesmanship. We have quite time for one more question. We'll take uh, this gentleman in the back here. Oh, can we get the microphone? Curious if there are any figure, thank you for this thought-provoking discussion. Are there any figures today that you would point to um, as exemplifying some of these elements of statement, statesmanship, despite saying there's a need for uh, refocusing on some of these original texts? Yeah, I, I mean, one person you know who who I look up to and admire is Robert Lighthizer. Um, you know, I think he um, you know he, he's someone who let's say had a, a very clear sense of where America was going wrong vis-a-vis -vis China. Going back to the you know to the 1990s, you know, penned an op-ed in the New York Times warning against China's entry into the World Trade Organization. Uh, but that was at a time when no one, we were still kind of in the highly ideological utopian mindset, so no one was really willing to listen to him. And then I think it's, this is someone who has the kind of the virtue component down, but the waves of fortune just aren't there, right? But it wasn't until like 2016 that those were there. And you know, I think you know he found himself in a position where he wasn't he wasn't. Um, there, there were many people even within the Trump administration that strongly disagreed with his position. And so he constantly had to do this counseling of a, of a king. To, and and it, there was a real art to how he did it, both internally, but also how he messaged externally. And I think largely, as we kind of will you know, get further and further from that, um, you know, his, his tenure, you know, we'll look back and say that there was actually a paradigm shift in the approach to US-China relations that was, you know, not entirely him. Um, obviously, the president had a lot to do with it, but he played a pretty key role in fundamentally changing the way we approach a major geopolitical issue. Yeah, I'm just thinking in the foreign foreign policy realm, if there's something, I think that's an excellent point and I have a lot of share your high regard for, for Bob Lighthizer. Um, well, I'll say this, and I mean, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but I think I think Kissinger maybe was a lost opportunity in this respect. Um, I, I mean, I was we were talking earlier that I think, in in some ways, Kissinger would have been an heir to this type of thinking. Hmm. Um, but I think he maybe in sort of went along with this this kind of technocratic ascendancy maybe he, he thought that it was its victory was inevitable rather than leaving a I mean it's interesting you're talking about de Gaulle and Kissinger's character sketch of de Gaulle in his book is absolutely beautiful hmm. I mean my view is that Kissinger in probably many in years will be remembered more as a writer and a beautiful writer and insightful writer rather than as a structured thinker about foreign foreign policy hmm. um, or even his state I'm not sure how well his, his statecraft will will uh, will age uh, compared to some of his some of the others in his in his time, but but I think that you know foreign policy is is um, has become very technocratic and and including on the right um, certainly in, in, in previous administrations before the Trump administration and even some elements within the Trump administration continued to be under the ascendancy of that technocratic end of it, end of history model, um, and I, I you know I, I think. Um, there maybe haven't been as many, uh, you know, a figure like a like a Bob to kind of really hold the hold the um, the, the torch even even in the darkness. <laughs> so so uh, you know we'll keep we'll keep. But this hopefully this will inspire some. Quite so. So thank you, Johnny and Bridge. The book is The Gateway to Statesmanship. It is out later this month. And uh, please visit isi.org, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, to learn more about the work that Johnny and I do there and also about statesmanship and the kind of education that is appropriate for liberty and for a republic such as America's. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our website at isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, debates, lectures, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.